Hello and welcome to episode 34 of the Figure Podcast. Each week we figure out people, numbers and images of the past, present and future. This week I have been clouded by Brexit, mentally, and uh, come to the conclusion that I should probably sleep more and drink less. I'm sure I'm not the only one in those two conclusions, but um, <laughs> those two things are particularly... What's your conclusion about Brexit, that it's confusing? Um, and cloudy. It's just, it's just, it's just cloudy is quite a good way to describe it's just it. Everywhere, it's just everywhere. I get mm. notifications about it. I'm constantly notified about it. Um, trying to carry on with normal life while that's sort of hanging on. I can't actually remember life before Brexit, and I actually don't know what it was like <laughs> to have a parliament that wasn't sort of in a crisis all the time. Yeah. Can you? Uh. Feels like a very long time ago. Yeah, it does, doesn't it? Moving on from Brexit, <laughs> what have you been reading or listening to this week? I started Brave by Rose McGowan after your recommendation of her interview with the Sunday Social Salon. Sunday Salon. The Sunday Salon last week. And it's a heavy book. Uh, just a lot of awful things happened to her in her early life I'm how only, far through it are you i'm only up to chapter three or four where okay. it's sort of her early experiences and bit of you know growing up in a cult and being homeless and all the things that she runs into and all the challenges and so sometimes i have to stop and come back to it later mm. i'm a bit when i'm in a better frame of mind um, is it one of those things that you need to have alongside other things that you're reading yes or otherwise you should be sad all the time yeah um and that's not in a that's not to criticise it. Um, it's I just very intense. Things, but yeah, it's, it's intense. It's intense. Mm. What about you? I have been listening to a lot of Women's Hour. They had a really good episode, which was very similar to what we talked about last week, actually. Really? Yeah. So they talked about the LGBT protests in mm-hmm. the school in Birmingham. And they had an interview with a Muslim mother who wants to be able to take that responsibility of teaching her children about different sexualities herself she doesn't want that to be left to the right of the school Mm -hmm. which was interesting because I do sympathize with her point of view but equally not every parent is going to be proactive in that way Mm. and they had some great listener responses as well I really like how they read out the responses at the end of the program um just talking about the purpose, those lessons in the first place is to make mm. anyone who is homosexual or queer or non-binary feel less alone and mm. know that it's okay. And that if if there are parents who are protesting because they think that learning about being homosexual is going to make them become homosexual, then that's just... Mm. I was that's just, just not... Yeah, I was actually talking to, to someone who's a parent who listened to that episode and, and said... Um, almost had that sentiment of I actually would rather my child didn't know about these things because often they're so young they don't even realise that that's Mm. happening and I said well no I mean it needs to be what about the the age they learn about sex education surely if they're old enough to learn about sex education they should learn about other sexualities and what about all the the people who realise the nature of their sexuality at a young age and then have years of potentially being bullied for it or, or just think or just it. not really knowing and thinking that they're the only person in the world that feels mm. like that i mm. just i i don't know what I to got, say to yeah, people who, i agree with the, um, the notion of of waiting until they are old enough to, to learn about sex like the sort of conventional form of sex education mm. you know if you don't want your child to learn about that 
you know, in primary school, then f- fair enough. Mm. But I think it should be the same standard for, for both. Yeah. Um, they also covered climate change and the environment. They had some great environmental activists. Um, we'll link that episode for anyone interested. I also listened to an episode of Hashtag Authentic, which is about kind of creativity in the modern digital world. Um, and it was an episode with Otega Wagba. And she talked about her upcoming book, We Need to Talk About Money, which is coming out next year, which I'm very excited about, especially because I'm reading Open Up the Power of Talking About Money by Alex Holder at the moment. And I think that they will be quite complementary of each other. Different approaches, because Otega Awagba's book is a money memoir, essentially. So it's part of digging into things like the gender pay gap, but also talking about her life and her quitting her job in advertising, going freelance, writing a book. She wrote a book and self-published it as part of her company, Women Who, and then it was picked up by publishers and then they ended up publishing it and it's become a Sunday Times bestseller. Mm. So I thought all of the the discussion of behind the scenes of what happened was really interesting. Um, and Alex Holder's book is another one that I would really recommend. It digs into things like why splitting the bill can be so awkward. Why is it awkward? So she feels like when you have had an an evening with your friends and you shared conversation and food and it's quite a lovely, mm. intimate thing to do, and then there's something that ju- it feels jarring when, you all so put jarring. Your, when you've got the bill at the end yeah. and the easiest thing to do is just to say, oh, we'll just split it down the middle. But actually, sometimes that can make people feel even more uncomfortable, especially Mm. if they are trying to save money and trying to budget because Mm. they might have had a cheaper option because Mm. of that. And then it ends up... So true, because it is so much less jarring if you're you're to dinner with either two or more people and everyone just puts their card in and Mm. just goes... Just split it four ways or whatever. Mm-hmm. It's just like oh, okay, but that only, it but it only works when you've all ordered virtually the Similar same things. things. I know, and then when you haven't, it's so yeah, it feels so awkward to just mm-hmm. go through the like go through the receipt like item by item. It's and there's like, always oh, someone just I know there's always someone who ends up paying extra because you didn't work mm. it out correctly. And anyway, so she, that's one of the few things that she talks about, but. She's got really good interviews with people from lots of different backgrounds, lots mm. of different salaries, and how they feel about money and the shame quite often that goes with it, no matter how much or little you're earning. Almost everybody just feels this, how do we talk about it? But we need to talk about it. And it definitely becomes, it's just, it's quite an empowering thing to do, I think. And you can, when you talk to your friends and family about all your other worries or things are on your mind and then there's this big taboo that can be hanging over so many decisions or it's just playing on your mind it's so much better to be able to talk about it so I would recommend that the first figure that we're going to be looking at this week is Nelson Mandela who is the former president of South Africa and importantly, the first democratically elected president of South Africa um, from 1994 to 1999. But that almost seems such a short period, short period of time for what actually how significant his life ended up being. Um, and he was born in July 1918 and passed away in December 2013 and spent 27 years famously in prison due to his... 
uh, opposition to apartheid in South Africa. Mm. But what I didn't realise about Nelson Mandela was that actually before his imprisonment, he was known very much as someone who was revolutionary and violent and... Um, well, he was the leader very much. Of- Yeah, he's the leader of the military section of the African National Congress, which is often shortened to the ANC. And I think the pivotal moment in that, the history of the way that they fought against apartheid and the separation of blacks and whites and the laws that were so different that applied to each of them was the Sharpeville Massacre, in which 69 people were killed and 180 people were injured. So this was in 1960. And from what I understand, up until that point, they'd very much followed the principles of Gandhi Mm -hmm. and how he had led revolution in India Mm. through non-violence. But after that massacre, they recognised that this simply was not going Mm. to work. And I think it's interesting to look at different revolutions that happened in the 20th century, such as suffrage, Mm. everything that happened in India, civil rights in America, America, and the role that violence played or didn't play, and then reflecting on how much impact that had on the outcome, Mm. because... I I think that was a talking point, particularly with the 100-year anniversary of some women getting the vote. People were asking, well, would you have been a suffragist or a suffragette in that would you have used violence or not used violence? And I think that it was the combination of those two parties and their two strategies that ultimately made the change. Mm. Um, But in America, you know, we have Martin Luther King and Malcolm X, and they had two different strategies. Mm. Um, And they had several instances where there would be massacres or um, brutality from the police that just meant that the only way that they could fight back was Mm -hmm. through violence. Mm. Um, I think the other thing to, to think about is the role of collaboration. And one of the quotes in uh, Nelson Mandela's very famous autobiography, The Long Walk to Freedom, is that to make peace with an enemy, one must work with that enemy and that enemy becomes your partner. And I think ultimately when he was released from prison, this these sorts of negotiations, this sort of collaborative way of working with people that they'd previously very much been in conflict with, that's where the change came about. Mm. What were some of the things that you discovered about Mandela that surprised you? One of the things that surprised me most was that he got married, uh, his his third wife, uh, on his 80th birthday. It's a pretty big 80th birthday. I know, and birthday. then they were married for 15 years or something. Wow. I know. And that was one of his long, longest marriages, wasn't it? Well, no, his longest marriage was to Winnie, and he was married to her between 1958 to 1999. Okay. So through his whole imprisonment. Wow, yeah, I remember reading that, actually, because I read The Long Walk to Freedom while I was in South Africa, and I it was quite a long time ago, but what I do remember is the number of times he was arrested before he was imprisoned on Robben Island. It was just this back, forth, back, forth, back, forth, mm. and the role of Winnie shone through as well in that. And I think... When I've been looking at some of the videos that they made to sum up his life, they talk about Mandela as one man and what he represents for South Africa and for the world. But I think actually it was he was a leader of a team of extraordinary people. Mm. Um, and it, 
I feel like a lot of male uh, figures and role models have amazing wives. Oh, yeah. <laughs> that makes sense, doesn't it? Because yeah. Because you, you, you often find that those sorts of people partner with other But equally, sorts of we're seeing people. that incredible female leaders have amazing husbands, like Jacinda Ardern being true. a good example. But those are very, very, very contemporary at mm-hmm. the moment. But yes, that is true. Mm. And this was part of the reason that we wanted to talk about Nelson Mandela is the, just the nature of leaders and what makes them a good leader. Because in Jacinda Ardern, we've seen someone who symbolically represents, I think, everything a leader should. Mm. She's so compassionate and her speech that referenced the... New Zealand National Anthem, which talks about welcoming everyone of all colour, race and creed. And she's she's just been the most incredible communicator in the way that she has led this country through such tragedy. And I think so much can be learned on from the way so that she's saying, stood are up. Are you saying that a good leader for you is someone who... Um, what was their values and what they stand for and absolutely that's more important than their actual policies yes so even though Theresa May might be negotiating what some would call a good compromise in terms of a deal mm-hmm. actually just her as as a leader as I a find leader, it difficult to yeah. look up to her whereas someone like Obama yeah very much has those absolutely that you're talking about absolutely yeah, I think I would think that's true actually. If you think about all of those incredible leaders, the people, what people come a- away with, is the character. Is their character, not necessarily mm. all of their pol- policies mm. politically, because actually those policies are created by a whole team of experts mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. as well as them. Yeah, I think it's it's them as a voice for something. What are they the voice of? Yeah, totally. Yeah. Also, my favourite quote of Mandela's, which I posted onto my Instagram, actually, the day that he died. And I remember it, because I, I love this quote. And the quote is, it always seems impossible until it's done. And I just can apply that to so many parts of my life. Mm. Yeah, there's so many wonderful quotes from him. Yeah. One of the other ones I came across, because um, I read that autobiography on my Kindle... And I remember it was one of those books that's so long when you mm. click on the percentage and you're oh just gosh, like, it's... 3%. <laughs> yes. Yes. And it was it's beautiful, so it's brilliant, but it took me a very long time to read it. Um, but one of them that I highlighted that I found today was, there is nothing like returning to a place that remains unchanged to find you yourself have altered. Mm. And I found that so many times where you go back to somewhere, especially if it's somewhere you went to as a child. Yes, like your family home. Yes. Or somewhere you went on holiday Mm. or just travelling to family, friends, or it can be anywhere, but it can bring back so many memories um, and they just resurface things that you didn't even remember that you remembered. I know. Um, It's very insightful. And you definitely see how much you've moved on as a person. If you were going to sum up Nelson Mandela in three words, which words would you use? Um, I would say he was unrelenting. I would say he was patient. Mm. And I would say that That's he... definitely something he learnt from prison. Yeah, 
Yeah. I can't even fathom how much that would have changed a person. 27 years mm. is such a long time. Mm. And I would say that he was... I don't want to say legendary because I feel like that word is used so colloquially now. Mm, but it's kind of been devalued, hasn't it? Because it's been overused. I feel like that's what I would, I would give that word to that kind of a leader that has those values as legendary. Mm. Yeah. Mm. The only other recommendation that I wanted to give is a BBC Witness episode. It's only seven minutes. And it talks, um, it's an interview with someone called Mac Maharaj, uh, who was the first to be released from Robben Island. And he was instrumental in gathering the manuscript and transcribing the manuscript for Long Walk to Freedom. Oh, really? And he was, because he was released first, the other thing is that he was released and then they said, you're not going back to your cell. And he hadn't had any of his stuff. And so he got, hadn't got the books and he hadn't got the notes that he needed to take out with him. Wow. And he somehow, he was moved to a different prison as well and he was able to keep moving it and keep the guards, you know, to, to say to them well, I've lent this to this person and lent it to this person. So he was able to essentially get the guards to coordinate getting all of these pieces of paper back with him so he could take them. And he brought it to London. And then it was able to be published, um, not actually until Mandela was released. But that whole story of how the autobiography came to be written and came to come out into the world was just amazing. It's, It's almost... It's so much a part of the story itself. I love that kind of story about a story. It's meta. Yeah, it's very meta. The second figure that we're going to be talking about today is that 60% of UK medical students are female. And the reason I wanted to talk about this is not just because of medical students, but just more generally about job stereotypes, which was prompted by a conversation I had with my friend Kate, who is a female engineer. And it's something that I think is really interesting to unpick because until you actually start thinking about it, you don't realise how many stereotypes you have had from such a young age mm-hmm. and how they informed the way that you would automatically assign a gender to a certain role before you know that person. Does that make totally. sense? I did it today. What was your example? A landlord. I assumed it was a he. And my colleague was like, no, she. I was like, oh. <laughs> how very apt to this. But I'm sure that we've always... <laughs> I'm sure so many people have done yeah. that. I've definitely made that mistake. Did you ever hear that joke about... Um, or it was like it was a riddle about I told the doctor. That to you. Yes. There are two Americans walking on a bridge. One is the father of the other one's son. And you just think, what, what is they divorced? And then one is married to the ex-wife. And then, and, then, and then it's also, there are two doctors walking on a bridge. One is the father of the other one's son. And you assume, again, that, that it's two men. Mm-hmm. Um, because you just hear doctors and you hear father and you're like, oh two men and you just can't work out that actually the other one is female but I remember hearing that riddle and I could not work it out yeah I know it's and so when scary. someone told me the solution which is so simple and so I was just so blinded I was so I know. embarrassed I know. um <laughs> anyway what do you think you 
thought about certain jobs when you were little? Like, what was... If someone asked you when you oh, were five... very gendered. So if someone asked you when you were five years old, can you remember what you said you wanted to be when you grew up? Uh, yes. When I was five... OK, I don't really know, remember, but, but when you, I was... You know, primary school. Really, really little. Ballerina, mm-hmm. actress, mm-hmm. dancer, performer, like, all of those kinds of things. Mm. Um, and then when I was about 12 or 13, doctor. But doctors, is actually they've actually been very... I think gender neutral, especially in the UK, for a long time. Mm. Um, and like the the figure today, the there are more female medical students in the UK than men. Mm-hmm. Um, and definitely, this the medical school that I went to to do my biomed degree. There were more females than men, mm. for sure. I think the other um, stereotypes that comes into this is of male nurses. Oh, that was yeah. I think that's the one that we kind of. And even films like Meet the Fockers, mm. right? That's kind of taking the piss out of mm. a male nurse. Mm-hmm. And there are so many TV programs that take the piss out of. Yeah, what is it about male nurses? And well, male nanny. Do you remember the yeah. episode of Friends, the manny? Yeah, he was one of the best nannies ever. But I still think but that's Ross a taboo. Had, Ross had a total complex over it, and he couldn't deal with this man mm. who was so good at looking after his baby. I still think that's a problem now. I don't think my mum would hire a man to be a nanny. For us. I don't think she would. I don't think she would have a, a male nanny like live in mm. and live in the family. And I don't know why. Mm. One of my good friends at school had did actually, um, and he was so, he was so lovely. He was so great. Yeah. But I don't. I don't know. I I grew up thinking that was so gendered. Mm-hmm. And it's those carer roles yes. that we were talking with Carol Easton about. And actually, that's why women get so you know they they have these jobs that are often low paid. Um, and that's why they can be so mm. much worse off. Mm-hmm. And I think there's a real divide between um, arts and science as well. That can become very gendered mm. from a very young age, where the girls are often more enthusiastic about being creative and having art classes, mm. handwriting, English. I'm being so generalist right now. but oh, that's true. And then... The, yeah, there's a sort of maths, you know, all girls, the girls aren't good at maths. Yeah. And that still gets or, bounded or, around classrooms now. Totally. Or, or if you have a brother and a sister in a family, I feel like the brother is definitely encouraged to take more subjects like maths and sciences, mm-hmm. even if they're more interested in art, or even if they're just as interested in art, yeah. whereas the girls, it's a little bit more okay. Mm-hmm. I find that, I mm. see quite a lot, actually. Well, there's a report that's come out very recently um, by founders for school and they've said that people should be careful of their career education and what people are kind of steering their children into from as early as two Mm. which is I mean I agree that it should start really young but I think two is I think it's just a wider picture it's just a wider picture of education isn't it yeah sort of try and kind of frog march your child through a certain Mm. career or um, ideal, but I think I think there's still such a huge problem that if a a little boy said, "Oh, I want to be a ballerina or a dancer," that unless they show, I remember there was one extro- like extreme yeah. talent that the, a parent was just going. No. There was one boy in my ballet class, and I think he stopped from quite a young age. But I remember that being like a defining characteristic of him mm. for all the other boys. I know, which is so bad. But Johnny Wilkinson did ballet. Oh, I didn't know that. Yeah, because it's really good for... Um, if you can point your toes, then apparently it makes you a better kicker. 
Oh wow! Because <laughs> I feel like now, if I had if I had kids mm. and I had a boy and a girl, I'd I'd literally sign them up to the same thing. I think it actually goes hand in hand with sports, you know, as well. Yes. Because you'd never think, oh, I want my daughter to play rugby or football, mm. unless she was like, oh, I really, really, really want to do that. You just wouldn't necessarily. You wouldn't assume. necessarily sign them up. No, but mm. you would for ballet or, mm-hmm. you know, maybe tennis or hockey. Yeah. And that's so weird, isn't it, how that's gendered. Also, at schools, you know, in boys' schools, they play football and rugby. And in girls' schools, you just don't play those sports. Football you do sometimes. Yeah. Not in my experience, but mm. fair. Yeah. I think I became really aware of um, more gendered sport when I moved primary school because... From what I remember, our play times had gone from being like running around, playing tig, and going on the swings and like climbing frame and stuff, where everybody was doing the same sort of activity, to the girls playing like pretend families mm-hmm. or playing with their teddy bears, mm. and all the boys were playing football. And very, very few girls would play football as well. Definitely. And it felt like much more of a division. And Definitely. that was when I was about eight um but i think sport is a huge one sport is so huge it still is such a big problem mm. women's coverage is just not the same mm-hmm. at all yeah that's the men's i think the other stereotype that i've been thinking about is um journalism mm. because i love writing i love interviewing people i don't really know when you can call yourself a journalist sometimes i feel like you should have a qualification to have that title I don't know. But I also think, why did I never think that that's something that I potentially wanted to study at university? And I think Mm. that quite often... I mean, journalism is such a huge, broad industry as well, but I had this idea in my head that journalists would twist people's words and it was quite malicious Mm. and that it was, like, splashy headlines that weren't very compassionate to people. Mm. But that's just one tiny fraction there are journalists who are like that definitely but definitely. I think I wonder how many job stereotypes have been embedded in us from a very young age or from the media generally which has held people back from pursuing certain careers I think so much and but I think that's going to change and I think it changes slowly again with talking about equality and feminism and you know the patriarchy and the those patriarchal structures. There is a reason why carer roles were given to women. They often weren't paid. You know, you often didn't need qualifications for them. Only men were allowed to go to university and you know be mm-hmm. academic. Blah blah blah. So, I think it will change. But it is interesting that still we have those stereotypes now. The third figure that we're going to be talking about today is the cover of Time magazine, which features Alexandra Ocasio-Cortez, also known as AOC, who has become the youngest woman ever to be elected to Congress. I feel like she is really representing what is happening right now in that younger people are just grabbing politics and conversations about topics by the rough of the neck. Um... And she's just kind of going in there, guns blazing with, this is my opinion, this is what I want to do, this is what I want to achieve. Um, will she become president? 
I don't know. I hope so. Um, she's definitely, f- like, very, 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 very much on the left. There will be no Republicans that will vote for her. So I feel I feel like th- there are a few more years yet before mm-hmm. before that goes into sort of a general yeah. election or becomes but, she becomes more successful on a national stage. Mm-hmm. But I think that it's really awesome that she is in Congress mm-hmm. and that she's been a, a real kind of life working person absolutely um fresh from Mm -hmm. that into congress she's talked a lot about the problem of american student debt she came out with 25k Mm. herself Mm. she then worked in a bar and a waitress her dad sadly passed away when she was quite young and supporting her mum financially through that and then she was an educational director. Mm. She studied economics and international relations. I mm. feel like she has the ingredients of an absolutely phenomenal and definitely a leader. And, and also just come from a phase in her life where she needs to be representing people who are also doing that and also, mm-hmm. you know, supporting parents and also students coming mm. from university. So she's an incredible asset to the Democratic Party. And sure. she's only 29 years old. Mm. But on your point of her not being elected and her being very far left, so the Time magazine... electable for, yeah. for right now. Yeah. Um, that's exactly what Charlotte Alter was talking about in the long-form article that went with the Time magazine cover. Um, so she was describing her as the Wonder Woman of the left, the Wicked Witch of the right, um, in terms of how divisive she can be. Mm. But she was saying that her politics is about winning hearts and minds, not flipping seats. And she is being aspirational and big and bold in what she's talking about in terms of climate change, in terms of reform of the fees of American Mm -hmm. colleges, in terms of the way that people where she's from in the Bronx have been treated. Well, it was like we were saying about, you know, these smaller parties or smaller individuals raising these issues and putting pressure on the bigger parties in order to change them because Mm -hmm. that's what will happen especially Mm -hmm. as the older generation you know pass on Mm -hmm. and the you know we have the younger population whom she she represents yeah and i think the key thing with her as a force in politics which hasn't really been seen so much until quite recently is her social media following Mm. so she last summer had 49,000 Twitter followers. She now has more than 3 million. Mm. And when she revealed her lipstick, I mean, this is such a mundane thing, but I think it's quite, it sort of shows the impact, um, which was from Bezo. It sold out straight away. Mm. So it's almost like the Kate Middleton. Definitely. Uh, like Definitely. phenomena. She's a very, also she's a very attractive young woman. Yeah. That's always marketable. Mm-hmm. Uh, Rose McGowan talks a lot about that actually in her book. Um, and the reason for that but that might be something that she uses as a force of good i don't know um it's definitely going to be interesting to watch her through this next election process this next election is going to be absolutely unbearable to watch because trump has a very good chance of being re-elected especially now with the results of the Mueller report and how he's kind of told his whole fan base and voter base that he was exonerated it's going to be a bitter fight and mm-hmm. it'll be it'll be great to see you know how, how she helps the democratic party yeah absolutely one of my um favorite quotes from her just going back to what we were talking about with mandela of what what are you a voice for mm. she says justice is about making sure that being polite is not the same thing as being quiet oh yeah i like that mm. i really love her speeches mm. and she 
I think she epitomizes what intersectional feminism means as well. She's mm. so um she covers sexuality, ethnicity, race, mm. your job, your work. She's just all embracing of Definitely. of people and Definitely. she is so clever in the way that she can undermine something that can be so corrupt like the funding of political campaigns in America and she's 100% people funded. Yeah, I know that's amazing. I feel like so many people kind of our parents age will sort of dismiss that but that's the problem with this intergenerational um conversation around climate change and you know veganism and all of this stuff is mm. they just kind of dismiss voices like hers as just being too young and I think that could be something that I think she's so it's powerful. It's her detriment ways. You have Bernie, right, who's actually very politically aligned to her. Well, she helped him with his campaign. Yeah, I mean, I mean, arguably he should be independent rather than a Democrat. He's not really Democrat. But but someone like him who's much older and male will be able to have a, a greater impact than her at this stage. Mm. Um, I actually was looking through Instagram earlier and I saw a post about AOC and asking kind of opinions from people who were following this person why they thought she was so divisive and why people, like certain people, really didn't like her. And my favourite response was, they're absolutely threatened by her. She is the epitome of what they fear from a younger generation, very educated and backs up what she says with more than snark. She comes with the science. She doesn't put up with people treating her less than, and they know she's exactly what a lot of women want to see more of in politics. Yeah, that's true. I bartended my way through college, and even as a white middle-class privileged American, as much as I'd love to have gotten politics, I was too afraid I was never going to be enough, exactly what a lot of women have felt for a long time, in brackets, hello, wage gap. But AOC is changing the climate, literally, with the Green New Deal and politically. That was from PCOS Support Girl. PCOS? Yeah. Great. Just, what does that stand for? Polycystic ovarian syndrome. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> um, but yeah, I just, I, I really did not know very much about her at all until mm. we, until I saw this cover of Time magazine. Yeah. And, I think um, the coverage of her over the next uh, presidential election is going to be huge, actually. Mm. Um, and it'll be interesting to see that. But I think that's very true. I think she is definitely what more women want to see, and that's inevitably going to be a threat. And even though the lovely listeners of this podcast, the people that we interact with, are very feminist, mm -hmm. that's actually not the case in a lot of the world. Yeah. So looking at the image itself, what do you think about the way that they have she looks like captured a, her? She looks like a movie star. She does look like a movie star. I mean, beautiful. Yeah. Um, I think people will yeah. be asking her what lipstick that is and that will be selling out. Yes, definitely. <laughs> it is great. But I think the other, the thing that struck me, and we talked about this when we talked about Kylie Jenner being on the cover as one of the youngest... The youngest The youngest billionaire. Again, in a black suit. Mm. And I would like to see a cover with a powerful businesswoman or politician or leader that doesn't put them into traditionally male wear. Mm. I yeah, think it's interesting you say that. Yeah. yeah because but then can suits be female as well? They can, but I just feel that... I want it to feel like it's their choice rather than something that they feel they have to wear in order mm. to be taken seriously mm. by certain people. Mm. Do you know what I mean? Yeah, definitely. Um, and I, I would actually, I would actually agree with you. I feel like if I'm not wearing a suit and it because of my blonde hair, sometimes I feel like, ugh. 
Mm. People just see through me sometimes. It's another stereotype. It is another stereotype. Mm. I always remember Helena Morrissey talking about that, who was our first ever figure mm. um, in her book, how, uh, A Good Time to Be a Girl. And she talks about how she bought a suit, I think, for one of her very early interviews. And then she never wore it again because she just didn't want to feel that she had to morph herself into being more male in order mm. to succeed in a predominantly male environment. And I really like when I see photographs of her and she's in, you know, bright yellow dress and she can wear what she wants to wear and still be respected and taken seriously as a woman. Mm. Thank you so much for listening to this week's episode of The Figure Podcast. As always, you can find us on Instagram and Twitter at Figure Podcast. We always like to hear from you and to hear about figures that you would like us to cover and we always like hearing feedback um because that's why we talk so much (laughs) about all the things that we do we want to open and start a conversation i also just wanted to say thank you to everyone who has listened to us for so long nelson mandela was our hundredth figure we've now done 102 figures when you add on the other ones and that's a lot of talking it is And a lot of listening. Absolutely. (laughs) Thank you for all the listening. We will see you next week. Until next week. Bye.